Hey there, Web3 Explorers. Stay tuned to this episode featuring our very own Jeff Kelly, along with Yat Su, chairman of Animoca Brands. The conversation was recorded from the main stage of our recent Outer Edge LA event, which took place March 2023. Organized by us at the Edge of Company, the Outer Edge event was a huge success, and we're already prepping for next year. You can click on the Watch tab on our website to actually view much of the talks from the event from the comfort of your home. All you have to do is enter your email address. You can also visit OuterEdge.Live for more info and start getting ready for next year by purchasing tickets to Outer Edge LA 2024. Hope to see you all there. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. So now we've got our very first speaker today coming to the main stage. I'm so excited about this. I've been so excited about this ever since I was saw he was coming. Okay, we've got a fireside chat with Yat. Culture and royalties are the key to Web3. Our first speaker today is Yat Su. I know he's not from LA because he walked here today. He is a champion. This man is the co-founder and executive chairman of Animoca Brands. Animoca is a leader in digital entertainment, gamification, and blockchain, and they are paving the way in digital property rights, helping to advance the open metaverse. And then we have interviewing him, Jeff Kelly, one of our very own. He is one of the co-founders of The Edge of Company, the company that has brought you this entire event. Let's make it loud for Yacht and Jeff, please. So great to see everybody here. Yeah, welcome. So great to see you as well. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here. And so let's jump right in. Let's talk royalties and culture. As you look over the last year, and as we know in crypto, a week is a month, a month is a year, a year is a decade. Like, What shifts have you seen that have influenced your thinking about now and the future? So I think one of the things that has become much more apparent, especially what happened last year, is that culture is becoming much, much more the vanguard of basically bringing people into Web3. It is much more important that people come for the culture and understand it. Last year, the narrative, and particularly in the US, of what sort of Web3 and crypto was taken over by what we describe as Wall Street crypto, right? Basically, the financial systems out there, the scandals around FTX and Terra and Three Arrows and all that stuff. And people started to forget, actually, that really what this is all about is building new economies. Right. Web3 is about basically building new ecosystems that have financial inclusivity that are basically like nation building. And the core for nation building in any place around the world, whether this is virtual or physical, is culture. Right. If you think about the strength of what it means of you know, your American culture, if America didn't have culture in your beliefs, for instance, and in your traditions, then you wouldn't have the strength of the nation that you have right now, and you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today. And that's kind of why we focus so much around culture, broadly speaking. And so everything you're doing here with NFTs 
you know, basically with this kind of digital property is actually a form of culture. So we describe non-fungible tokens as stores of digital culture in the same way that some people might describe Bitcoin as a store of value. They're both important. But if you think about how you interact in your own life, 99% of what you probably interact with mostly is all in a cultural context. Even traditions, even things you purchase, the clothes you buy, for instance, the place you choose to live in, actually speaks to a personal culture. And so when we talk about what happened last year, because of the marketplaces basically eroding for their own market share, the value they give to creators, we thought that was very dangerous. We still think it's dangerous because the whole thing that can bring value basically into the metaverse is now no longer having this income stream that is important. And we described it a little bit like if you delete essentially royalties to creators, it's a little bit like imagine Ethereum with no gas. And eventually you would have an effect of a tragedy of the commons and that would basically just disappear and you would no longer have an ecosystem that could su support and maintain itself. But the positive news is that there's been enough uproar. If you do basically a smart contract that has allow lists, if you put legal frameworks around it, they started to enforce royalties. So when we launched, for instance, our Mochaverse NFTs, they are fully enforced both in Blur and OpenSea, meaning that what was a big topic a month ago, everyone was declaring royalties are dead. Actually, that's not true at all anymore. And I think we're back to sort of a positive track, although there's still work to do. There you go. And that's a distinctive lens, man, the, the driving the ideas and the concepts through the lens of culture. In your quote recently, you said, creators are the backbone of all culture and culture is the backbone of our economies. Yeah, so look at America just as a single example. The second largest service economy in America is all what they call arts and culture. But that's a direct employment. That's people working in movies, that's probably most of Los Angeles, right? But the consequence of that is not just people who are musicians and creators and artists. That, by the way, is almost $900 billion in 2022 as the second largest service economy. Wow. But the largest service economy is retail and trade, which basically measured around 2.2 or 2.3 trillion. So that's obviously much larger. But then when you think back and say, well, what is retail and trade? This is retail and trade. The purchase of your cars is retail and trade. The houses you purchase is retail and trade. Is that just utility? It's culture. Everything you're wearing is culture. Every Nike outfit you're buying, every Gucci outfit you're buying, or whatever fashion brand is all culture. In other words, even though the direct economy is basically coming from creators and artists, which is the 900 billion, actually the number one economic output, which is retail and trade, is the trade and goods of all kinds of culture. Now, if you didn't have culture, if you didn't have Hollywood, then you won't have Netflix, you won't have the App Store. Actually, what's the purpose of Google? What do you search for most of the time? Do you search for how to make food? Or do you search for areas of culture? right? The things that you're looking for, the way we spend time, right? Even when we think about things of our own life, about things like passion or love or whatever, these are all areas of culture. So culture is underlying everything. Now imagine for a moment that you lived in a country that had no culture. That would be a pretty terrible place to live. And I think we know some places in the world that are like that perhaps or have limited culture. And as a result, they don't have that diversity. They don't have the freedom. Actually, it also doesn't have the economic development. So to us, Culture also allows for economic development because of diversity, because of intellectual property rights. So it's very, very important. So let's talk about that a little bit. Right? So protecting rights, if culture is the conduit for value and creators are the foundation of that, how should creators be thinking about protecting rights and value for themselves? 
So one of the things that you can see with the Web3 community versus, let's say, other communities that are not in the space is the financial knowledge people have in Web3, in terms of financial literate, is almost one-to-one. If you're actually in Web3, you are at least level two, level three in financial knowledge. Now, when you interact with many people who are in, let's call it Web2 or not in the Web3 world, the probability of meeting someone who understands actually how to think of financial systems or are financially, let's call it educated, as you might consider, is actually very, very low. And the reason that it's so low is because we don't teach financial literacy at school. So my mom was an artist. She was a musician. She was performing in Europe. And she was always taken advantage of as an artist because they always told her, you're an artist. You don't have to worry about money. You don't need to know anything about this stuff. I'll take care of that for you. Sounds familiar, right? And this happens. And I'm not saying that agents in themselves are bad people. They do a very important service. But because they hold the power of money, because they understand the financial system, you know, one of the other things that people often say is, artists and creators should focus about creating. Let the guys who know about money focus about money. But the problem is is that because money is also power, once they control that, they abuse it. Right? They're like, oh, well, hmm, maybe you should get, first we'll give you 50%, then I give you 30%, then I give you 10% because you control that. Which is basically changed from the individual relationship between agents into the platforms. The platforms being Apple or Facebook or Google or Amazon, it doesn't really matter. They're the ones who now become your agents of your culture, of your content, and they're taking it away from you. And that's why Web3 is so important. So what happens, we think, is if we actually adopt Web3 more broadly, first of all, there's more equitable distribution of the value chain, because you can sort of audit and see that. But the other, much bigger effect that we think will happen is that every person, as I think many people who may have not been in Web3 but then joined Web3 and really got into it, they became financially literate. They started to understand not just their own value, but the value of other things. They understood, oh, I should buy this too, or I should own my property, I should own my intellectual property, and then it sets them up for long-term because they basically become equity holders, which is the problem, right? Capital accumulation is much more valuable than pure labor, and I think this is the thing where most of the world has been excluded from this because they still think of labor as the main form of value creation when it's basically capital accumulation and sort of the whole world of capital. That's created sort of problems in capitalism as we see today. So when you think about ownership and you mentioned the value, the payouts to creators, starts at 50, goes down to 40, 30, 10, sometimes close to zero, it reminds me of, and I've heard you speak of music streaming and the evolution of that element of our economy. It's really changed tremendously in the last decade plus. What are your thoughts on that side of the house? One of the tragic things about the music industry is that we have become accustomed to the idea that we shouldn't pay for music. This was not true in the 80s. Back in the day, I was actually trained as a classical musician. I didn't go into that direction, but that's what my parents were doing. And they actually could make a good living as a musician because people would be willing to pay for music. It was quite normal. But what happened first wasn't even streaming. Streaming was a reaction to piracy. Things like Napster and Pirate Bay and so on came in, and by growing their own marketplaces, so to speak, and their own communities, they basically pirated music, simply. What happened was is that it happened for such a long period of time, which is also the reason that we're really trying to fight sort of this zero royalty thing as we did, aggressively as possible, because we didn't want it to become a social norm. Paying for music is not a social norm anymore. Paying for music is almost considered stupid. Why would you pay for music? You could just get an all-you-can-eat subscription. And suddenly, every company is competing on that basis. 
Now, what happened with basically decades of piracy is that now musicians have been uh, sort of commoditized. They can no longer make music as a musician, so it's performance. And what's also happened is that when the streaming platforms came and said, hey, I can solve this for you, they gave all their rights essentially to the streaming platforms. Spotify last year, for instance, uh, paid out $7 billion for creator sort of royalties, most of them obviously to the publishers and the distributors. But even that amount of money isn't enough for musicians to survive on. They make sort of you know, literally microcents basically per stream. It's, there's no money involved in that. Now, that has to do with the fact that there's no ability for capital formation in a streaming model because it is like rental, right? So it's like the amount of money you make if you just rent a property is very different than if you can sell it because you can give it capital forward value. That's what property rights does. That's capital formation. So I'll give you one data point, which is really interesting. $7 billion was paid to creators from Spotify last year. NFTs in the bear market last year generated $24 billion in revenue of sales, of which 90% went to creators and owners. Now, just think about that. An industry that is just millions of customers is generating three times the value that Spotify, which has like two or three or 400 million customers, generates. That is a paradigm difference between owning something and renting something. And this is, by the way, true in the physical world as well. The reason you can buy a house in Beverly Hills or wherever in America for the premium that it is, is because it's your property. You can invest in it for long-term value. But if you could only ever rent the house forever, the value you generate is literally what you pay each month, which is what we do in the digital world in the form of subscription. So you can now compound the value of subscription long-term because of ownership, which is how capitalism works. That's the part where I think everything, therefore, will get appended with sort of creator economies. If you're an artist and you can make money from just a few thousand customers much more sustainably than through a few million customers, why would you do that? You can also create much more freedom in the art you want to make because you no longer have to appeal to mass market. You can appeal to a core audience that will appreciate you, which we do today. For instance, you go to a restaurant and the restaurant doesn't serve a million customers. Most restaurants serve a few thousand people with their particular cuisine, with a particular culture that they put in. You appreciate that. You're willing to pay a premium for that food because it means something that's special and that's good. Right now I see the digital world is very much like fast food. The music industry is everything has to become McDonald's because if it's not, you don't make money. And with Web3, with ownership, we can go back to our creative roots and everyone can start creating more diverse content, which we're seeing in NFTs, right? You see the NFT content that is out there, whether it's Bored Apes, whether it's Cool Cats, whether it's Mochaverse. Those, the customers that make these ecosystems are not millions of customers. They're tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, and that is already a big enough economy. You have questions about blockchain? Like, how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or have you received that chain letter? How did you block it? And does blockchain taste better, barbecued, or deep fried? <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore, because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them, and also train you in real-world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. 
if you're into those sorts of things. Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. <laughs> so hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. Yeah, man, that really demonstrates the power of what's happening in Web3. Let's talk a little bit more specifically and zoom in a little bit. So if I'm a creator, I'm a builder, I'm thinking about a drop coming out of crypto winter into the future here. What considerations should I have in mind about the value creation at Mint versus sustainable royalties and other factors? So we take two, call it philosophical approaches in terms of when we think of Mints and successful approaches on this one. The first one is that Web3 is the perfect way to align interests. Right? And so in other words, how do you leverage that? So the reason why you want to give Mints at very low prices or maybe even free isn't because you don't want to make money. Obviously, you want to make money to be sustainable. It's because what you're really doing is giving the NFT, your project, to your community to help co-create it with you. So think of it almost as a recruitment drive of bringing in community members to grow that, and they become essentially your sales force, your agents, the ones who are building that business. Effectively, it's, like, it's almost like giving shares, but not quite, because it's not the same, right? To basically a group of people who will help build your business. That's one way to think of that, right? Whereas if you, want to, if you extract too much value in the beginning, you could do that, but then the role of creating that value rests entirely with you. So if you ended up doing a $10 million NFT drop, that's okay, but then everyone who bought the NFT has the absolute expectation that you're gonna do everything in your power to make it valuable. It's a very different experience than when you're giving something to someone else and you say, come build this with me, right? And you can see this effect in things like Bored Apes, for instance. For those who remember, it was a very, very low, low cost mint. But the benefit of that was that every member had a motivation to help build it up, to build the kind of ecosystem that it is. And then the royalties is what actually drove the engine to create then things that we have with mutant apes, derivatives that came out, and all the games and other deed. That was only possible because of royalties. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have been possible otherwise. The second thing is that we consider the way when you generate sort of sales from the community, effectively like a form of liability. And I think this is something that many projects don't think of this way, especially big brands who just come in and think of it as, oh, let me take as much money as I can. In fact, we have to sort of joke in in internally about Web 2.5. Web 2.5 is obviously a real meaning in terms of let's make it easy for Web 2 guys to go to Web 3. But the problem about the Web 2.5 argument is which side of the Web 2.5 are you on? Are you Web 2.4 or are you Web 2.6? Many people want the control of Web 2 but want to make money like Web 3. And that doesn't really work, we feel. So the mental model we think of is, is like when we generate sales, we think of it as a liability. When we take money from customers, which are owners effectively because of NFTs, we owe them something, right? We have a duty back to the customers. If you, now it doesn't mean that you can always succeed, but if you have a mindset that you're serving customers because you took their money, it's very different than saying, I just did a drop, made some money, great. Here's another drop, and here's another drop, and let me keep selling, which was a little bit what happened in 2021, and to some extent 2022, where it was still thinking Web 2 in terms of maximum extraction as opposed to co-creation. So I, I always encourage builders in the space to think about you're co-creating with your community, 
use the mint mechanism as a way to build that. And from that, you basically have a force that money can't actually buy. Like if you have a thousand fans that will promote your product and keep sort of building you up, you can't hire a thousand people. Yeah, most definitely. And we think about what's next. You're in this unique position. You're seeing so many different companies, supporting so many companies, investing in so many different companies. How is Animoca Brands supporting this vision that you've already articulated in this conversation? What does that future look like? So for us, we have multiple ways in which we invest in build and stage. Well, a lot of people think of Animoca Brands as a VC. We're not actually a traditional VC. We invest out of our balance sheet. We are a builder in the space, things like Sandbox, for instance. But what we also do is we invest in ecosystem companies that help us sort of build the space broadly. So we're investors in probably like 30, 40 different marketplaces. We're invested in over 130 games. In total, we today have over 400 portfolio companies that we've invested in to help build up that space all over the world. And the lens that we think that is really interesting on this one is still early in terms of Web3 adoption, broadly speaking. So every one of you here is building. We think of it as a little bit like building internet 2000, 2001. So you still have a while to go, except capital formation is very powerful, meaning that you can make more value in this stage, in the early stage when there's still what appears to be low number of users relative to basically the broader market. So I think that's really fascinating. The other one I think is looking at markets beyond your particular area. So last year, unfortunately, because of everything that's happened, the US, I think, has taken a much more negative view to crypto, broadly speaking. And NFTs has been caught up in that a little bit. Whereas in Asia, for instance, the whole space has been looked at very positively. So you don't have the same resistance. So for instance, in America, big game publishers like EA or like, you know, GDC is running right now at the same time. None of the big companies at GDC are talking about NFTs at GDC. However, when you go to Japan or Korea or Hong Kong, all the major game publishers, which are very big, like Square Enix or Nexon or those guys, they all have a blockchain strategy. So there's a very big difference in terms of the approaches between the two markets. And because it's early, I feel like in the US, people have an intellectual advantage, as in the IP, the know-how, and the development that you've done in the US is actually more advanced than Asia because you started earlier, right? Like companies like OpenSea or the Layer 1 protocols, many of them emerged from here. But the adoption and readiness, the willingness as a market actually sits in Asia. If you go and want to sell something to you know, people in Japan or Korea or Southeast Asia, you'll find a much more ready market. Versus over here, you might find in your dinner table, you might get one guy, oh, NFTs is great. And then five other guys is like, oh, it's a scam, right? And I think it has a lot to do also with the sentiment. People in the US, a large swath of people in the US have started to veer somewhat anti-capitalist because capitalism hasn't worked for them. Right? Whereas in Asia, a lot of people are very pro-capitalist because of their own experiences with what capitalism has brought to them in their lifetime, as an, for example. I joke about this, but it's kind of true. The American dream is much more alive and well in Asia than it is in America um, for all the reasons we just discussed. So build sustainable models, over-deliver on value, you know, consider these various attributes that you've been talking about. What other aspects of NFTs are we not thinking about or hearing about in the media right now, but that you're excited about? So one of the categories I'm particularly excited about is what we call publisher NFTs, that is for teachers. Now, we have within a group a company called TinyTap. It's a way for teachers to create educational apps. It's been around since 2014. It's a Web2 company originally. And what teachers do is they make a content, how basically someone can learn how to do math for a six, seven, or eight-year-old in a certain way, 
as we know, teachers create custom content for their students all the time, and they might make $100 or $200 a year extra side income as they basically teach as their main job. Parents and so on will buy that content. So this is already content that's making money, but relatively small. When we acquired TinyTab, what we thought we would do is we would basically create these as royalty-driving elements that people would own these NFTs and effectively become publishers of the NFT that already makes income. And the owner can also then maybe promote this and maybe make more money. It's no different than someone buying apps. And, but because they're only worth a few hundred dollars a month or a few thousand dollars a year, it's very hard to have capital formation in a traditional sort of M&A sort of model, for instance. So the reason we can willing to pay for a house and put all the legal infrastructure in place is because it's a million dollar house or a $200,000 house. So it's worth it to spend five or $10,000 in creating a contract, a legal structure, ownership, all that kind of stuff. But with NFTs, you can do that entire transaction for basically pennies or dollars. So I can own the rights for this, all the royalties attached, for even something that might only make $100 or $200 a year. But as a result of that, I'm prepared to buy it for a capital formation value because I'm happy with a 10 or 20% yield. That means something that was making $1,000 a year, which you can't sell in a traditional way because of the cost it takes to do that contract with NFTs, you can do that essentially at a fraction of a cost. And as a result, these teachers, teachers in America are amongst the least paid but in terms of, I would argue, most valued in society in terms of they're teaching our kids. I think it's pretty important, but they're being paid very little. They will end up making several years of their salary on their first NFT sale. So that was amazing. And that came out late last year. And some teachers were making like $60,000 on their first NFT sale, which was astounding. And this is, by the way, true for every category. We don't mean this is only true for teachers. It can be true for any category that is essentially generating income but can't enjoy the benefit of capital formation because the current structure is too expensive to do so because you have to hire a lawyer or do that kind of stuff. Now, what's exciting about TinyTap is they have about 300,000 teachers using it and they serve around 8.6 million families. So this is the ecosystem that we hope that we can onboard. But it's still only a small amount of the total teachers and education people out there in the world. I mentioned that artists and creators are the sort of second largest service economy. And they employ roughly 2 million people in America. But there's about 3.6 million teachers in America. Right? So you can kind of see and sort of where the potential lies. And our perspective, even though they're not in the same bucket, is that actually teachers are creators too. Because they create knowledge for our children and for others. But they can't benefit from a creator economy because there's no setup for that. I think Web3 enables that because content becomes a platform. Hey there, NFT space cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. 
Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls, comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe. It's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole enchilada NFT service can help you. Yes, you, Randy. Launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. Yeah, I know no matter where you go, there's always a long line of people wanting to talk to you, looking for advice, asking questions, trying to understand what they should be doing, where they should be looking for inspiration. Last night at our VIP party is no different. Today will be no different. But I can say from experience, having participated in one of the Animoca brand supported launch pads, that your views and your core values, your ethos is shared by so many people within Animoca Brands. It's very consistent. And I wanted to give an opportunity to share any programs or opportunities for the folks here that are interested in being inspired and in, in finding tools to build and figuring out their next steps. Like what should they look to within the Animoca Brands family or beyond? So the principle that we always talk about is what we describe as a shared network effect. One of the big hopes that we have in Web3 is that it has the ability to effectively create a more inclusive kind of capitalism. Now, what we have today is a form of shareholder capitalism, which means that the value accrues only to shareholders, as we see today. But only a small number can benefit. We have no way, even though all of us here are effectively laboring for companies or doing stuff for others, we don't have a way in earning that share. That's not how it works today. This is what's possible with Web3. Every time you're earning a token, for instance, it may seem it's just a token, it could be a currency, but what you're really doing is you're earning equity in something, whether it has governance or not, whether it gives you rights or not, whether it makes you own the land or not. These are all elements of that ownership, but you're beginning to earn something. So the mental model I sometimes explain to people around this is like, imagine what Web2 would look like if we had a Web3 model every Uber driver would be owning shares every time he drives. What would the relationship of the Uber driver be with Uber, the company, if he was accumulating assets in the very business that he's empowered? Right now, Uber drivers don't exactly love Uber. But in that relationship, I think they will love Uber. They'll create a relationship that creates a union aligning the interests. So we can see how this model can work for every Web2 company if you move it into Web3. So this is the opportunity for everyone here. How do you create with Web3, with that possibility, a way in which you can align the capitalist incentive with everyone and include them? And we describe this as a kind of stakeholder capitalism because every one of your relationships is no longer that one of a customer-consumer. Right? When people talk about consumer relationships, it's, like, it's really meaning you're consuming, which basically means extraction. How much can I take from you, right? That's the consumer experience. But in Web3, the experience is one of ownership. So you become an owner, which means I'm a co-participant. I enjoy the benefits. I also enjoy the troubles, right? I'm not sure if you could call it enjoyment. But we build in this together, and we have a vested interest in its mutual success. So that's the paradigm. That's a principle. So we call this a shared network effect, which means that even if some businesses aren't going to be the biggest thing out there, as long as you're building in the ecosystem, you will share broadly in the space. 
Now, in normal economies, we see the same thing. If a business has great success in Los Angeles and employs a lot of people, that allows for a restaurant to open, that allows for little shops to open in that experience because the economy broadly increases, which is why we always describe the metaverse as an economy. Whereas in the Web2 monopolistic type model, unfortunately, what happens is, is there's always a sort of a, a monopolizing of it and essentially a kind of almost sort of scorched earth where you will need to eradicate every player outside in order to have absolute control to build those monopolies. So Web3 does away with that. So if your mindset is like this, if you're thinking about a shared economy, if you want to build together, I think Web3 is very compatible for you. I think for a lot of people who built in the sort of old way, they sometimes struggle with that. If this is an area that interests you, then absolutely look into Web3. We have accelerators, for instance, with ZK Launcher. We also have the Ventures team that invests in seed and early stage companies. We have Animoco Capital that invests in late stage companies and, of course, ourselves. But generally, I would say, if you look at this sort of so-called bear market, it is a bear market. But the number of investments that happens in Web3 still far outperforms any other segment except AI in the last month, <laughs> right? Right. right? So if you single out AI, then I would say that uh, obviously uh, Web3 generally still has received most of the investments in the past. So this is actually still a very strong opportunity. Thank you, yeah. Any closing thoughts on the position that culture has in your mind for Web3? Well, I mean, I've already said this before. Culture is the backbone of all economies. Culture is also effectively the meme economy, if you will, which is the part where value accrues. And I sometimes joke about this with my sort of uh, very... DeFi crypto native friends who sometimes struggle with this. I say, you need to understand that culture is the biggest locked TVL in the world. When you think of it in total value locked in any economy, it's all in culture. Because that's the type of stuff that you buy because it's part of your identity. You buy a car, you buy a house, you buy clothes, you buy these things because they speak to you something intrinsically that means something to you that isn't immediately tradable. Right? If you're a, and that's the difference between people who think about culture, which is what most of us do, versus thinking about just Wall Street or money. Because people in Wall Street typically think about liquidity. They think about what I buy, I must be able to sell. Everything has to be liquid in that context. But imagine if we did this with our wedding rings, right? You know, or imagine if we did this with our personal sort of things that mean something to us, even our clothing items or personal artifacts. It would be a terrible place, and that's not how we, how we are. So culture is really impactful if from an economic standpoint, and therefore culture is going to drive mass adoption to Web3. The biggest digital culture, which has now become mainstream culture, is gaming. One of the reasons we focus on that, 3.4 billion people play games, which is two-thirds of the world's internet. They already basically buy skins. How many people play games? They're not buying things to give them an advantage in the game. They're buying things to look good, right? And that's $100 billion alone just last year, buying cultural artifacts in games. Culture, the foundation of the future of Web3. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, everyone. Thanks thank for joining us. Thank you. Okay, we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship, so invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us, and say something cool. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.